Welcome to another episode of Just Us on Justice and Other Things. I am Scott Jones, your co-host with my baby brother Dan Jones. And no offense to any guest who's been here before or will come in the future, but this is my favorite guest ever. <laughs> and it's not because I just have to say that. It's because it's true. I actually mean it. Uh, we have my lovely bride here, Terry Jones. Uh, of course, we started out with, hey, we'll just talk about whatever. And she's like, absolutely not. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to have a little focus here, have some notes, and then she will start wherever she wants. And she will tell us exactly what we're supposed to do as should be expected. So thank you so much, my dear, for coming on the podcast. And I will turn the mic over to you. <laughs> thank you. So lovely to be here. This is going to be fun. <laughs> we can edit. We can edit if we have to, but I choose. I would rather that you didn't because it's going to be lots of fun. So yes, when you guys first decided you were going to do the podcast, I researched um, formatting and I researched microphones and I gave you a list of questions and you guys just laughed and threw it in the garbage. So yes, I did come today with some notes. I'm prepared. There's going to be some structure today. We'll try and stick to it. (laughs) So what I actually want to start with is um, the first time that I met your family. So maybe, I mean, most of the people that are listening to your podcast now, I think maybe know a little bit about your family or have learned some stories about your family over the course of maybe listening to some of the previous episodes. So um, Scott and I have known each other since grade two. Um, so we've known each other a very long time. Uh, we've been married for 28 years. We've been together for 35 years and, um, started dating in high school. So we really are high school sweethearts. And I remember the first time that I, um, met your entire family because I've known Dan since you were probably 13 13. years old. Yeah. So I don't remember what Scott and I it did, but I, I remember we had gone on a date and he brought me back to uh, the house to meet everyone, which is the same house that we're still in. So it, it was in the living room that is, you know, just, just across from where we're recording this episode. So I came in the door and Dan, you were laying on the floor yeah. and your mom was rubbing your big toe. Because you apparently had a headache. Yes. So she was doing some sort of reflexology on your foot because you had a headache. And so I met Brian and Susie and Dan that day. And um, your family decided that we should maybe uh, go to Dairy Queen and get some ice cream together as a family. And so we packed up and we drove over to the Dairy Queen that wasn't too far from our place and I'm again, I was 16 at the time, um, very extroverted family. I came from a very introverted family, so there was lots of energy. And we were standing in line ordering our, um, our dessert, and your dad was at the front of the line, and he said something to me like, um, I'm going to hand this to you, Scott, because you'll do a better version of what your dad said to me. So the lady behind the counter, no doubt a child, because that's what works at Dairy Queen, uh, so the young girl behind the counter uh, asked, would you like chopped nuts on your ice cream? And my dad pointed at you with like finger guns and said, you want your tits shot off instead of crushed nuts? And he thought that was funny. And we all just did the, what <laughs> is happening? <laughs> so yeah. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, that was that was when I was first introduced to the Jones family. Yeah, it was super interesting, and it's just been a barrel of laughs since. And you're still here, <laughs> and I'm still here. It's kind of, it's kind of your fault now. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. My question is, you've been together for 35 years, right? Yeah. But yeah. you're only married for 28. What took you so long to lock her down? <laughs> I like, unlike other Joneses, my our father and you didn't have to knock her up for her to stay married to me. Uh, that was yeah, the difference. You guys had to set hooks yeah, so true. that they were trapped. <laughs> I did the like I tried to cajole her into staying, and somehow she's managed to. Because when you see the picture, no doubt when you've clicked on this link and you see the photo of her, and if you go back and see photos of what Danny and I look like. I clearly married up. Like, it makes almost no sense, which is why I'm a good cook, because I have to keep my game up. <laughs> yeah, so I had to put the brakes on getting married even earlier than I than I think. I mean, we got married when um, we were both 22, I believe, and I had to put the brakes on that hard. I was like, could I just go to university <laughs> and get a job and, and uh, work for a little while? So, um, yeah, there was seven I years. Had, I already had two kids by the time I was <laughs> Yeah, so I was trying to like, but you know, just can we, you know, go through? We need, can we buy a house? Can we get married? Can all of those things? And um, yeah, so I mean, even though we did get married quite young, I think you probably would have liked to get things rolling a little earlier. Our kids would have been what, like 40? 40 by now. now. Yeah. But it's important to note that you were still in university when we got married. We had our own house. You were in university and working because back then you did the 30 hours and we had our one car and then you would take the bus to and from job and all that. Yeah, so when you got hired with the police, um, I still think I had maybe a, a year, year and a half to go. We got married over reading week, which is why we got married in February over reading week. Uh, we went on our honeymoon when I was, I still hadn't finished writing final exams. I had to get some of my exams deferred to go on my honeymoon. And um, so I had a, a year of school left. You were working. I think you were making $13 an hour, Fourteen, yeah. $14 an hour as a police officer. And when I got my first job after seven years of university, might I add, I think I was making $16 an hour, um, which is kind of crazy when yeah. you, when you look at things now. So yeah, those, those early days of being married to a policeman were, um, we were pretty poor, but it was lots of fun. Yeah. So um, in those early days, I mean, obviously I'd married into a police family. I don't think I had any idea what I was really getting into. We were all very young and very naive, but, um, you know, that police culture um, was really tight. You know, your dad and being around all of um, his friends and colleagues and uh, the parties they would have here at the house and just that camaraderie, you could see how much everyone cared about each other. And I think that was super interesting early on. Um, I mean, when you were in recruit training, some of the fun that we had with, you know, friends that you still have to this day, those were really tight bonds that we had with some of the the hall parties <laughs> back in the day. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that from sort of the early days of when you first started as a police officer. Well, I think it's just... I was 21 years old and I think everybody knows now that 21 year olds really don't know much and our brains aren't even fully formed yet. So, excuse me. So it's kind of interesting that you're thrown into this. It was 16 weeks of training of block one when I started. And then you are out there with a gun and a badge and expected to make critical decisions and deal with people in significant trauma. 
And none of that was talked about. And none of it was talked about even the trauma that we would absorb as first responders or how that would impact. And I know very early on it totally changed me and I had trouble regulating myself at the start. And it was really tough. I know it was really tough on you. And I think it's been really, that's kind of going to be the focus vaguely is being, uh, I think it's the most difficult job there is, is being a spouse of a first responder. And I use that first responder term broadly, not just police, but we'll focus on police because in this instance, that's what we know. Yeah. And I mean, when you first started, we did, I mean, I knew you before you were a police officer, which is not everybody has that vantage point. And so I knew you didn't want to do anything else. And that's what I had signed up for. I knew what I was signing up for. Um, and we did in those first few months after you started go through an adjustment with how we were communicating each other with each other because you experimented with not telling me anything about what was going on at work. And that didn't land very well. Um, we became very disconnected and I didn't understand um, what you were trying to navigate. Um, and so we had to come to terms with like how you were going to be able to have a safe place to decompress when you came home and, and on some level, let me know what you were experiencing without like trauma sliming me. And, you know, there were periods, you know, over your career where, you know, I had to set some boundaries around that for myself too, just because I was getting a bit overwhelmed with some of the information that was coming my way. But yeah, we had to navigate that pretty early on as to like how we were going to talk this through. Yeah. And I, Scotty started at 22 Sorry, 21. I started at 22 in policing and I was the oldest, I was the, up until Cameron, I was the oldest person in our family. That was the oldest start because Uncle Randy was 18, Dad was 19 or 20, you were 21 and I was 22. And I still think that's crazy that we did that. But I also had the, so from, I know my spouse isn't here, but she also had that experience with me working in a prison. So I just wanted to bring that up because you said other first responder communities. So um, I started working out in provincial and federal prison. And that's another different thing to navigate, right? Like you're behind a wall. You can't, you're not calling home. You, they can't call you. They, there's no checking in on you during a, during a shift, which didn't happen often anyway. Or if an emergency happened, it's pretty hard to get into somebody who's stuck behind a wall. And and then I was the same. I did the same thing. I didn't tell Tara anything, right? Like when I almost, I only got into a, I got into a significant <coughs> incident in the federal prison. I didn't tell her because I didn't want her to think of, every time I left for work that something bad was going to happen. And I, you know, we're doing, we're recording this actually on the same day that the second regimental funeral in a short period of time has happened. And um, when we, right before um, the, the previous one with the two young EPS members, you said something to me, Terry, that resonated. And it also really just hit me just now is you said you knew what you were signing up for, but you had sat on the couch beside Ezio Ferron prior to him being, killed and that for you is a whole other thing you knew him before he was a cop you said you signed up for it and then you right at the very beginning experienced that yeah you're right you and I did have that conversation because um after the loss of um, constables Jordan and Ryan um I was went down a rabbit hole of trying to you know look for some other support from spouse first responders who had maybe been in the same situation and most of what I was seeing either written or online would say you know there's low risk there's low risk nothing like that ever happens in Edmonton there's nothing to worry about but I came into it within 
two Jeez. years of losing uh, um, Ezio, who was very close to your family, and then you starting. I didn't have that buffer. And I think I just was in, I never worried about um, you um, when we were in our 20s and, and you first started your career. I, re- I can truly say I didn't, but I think that was a bit of a coping mechanism. And I just kind of set it aside in a box because I didn't have that buffer of mm-hmm. like, oh, there's no risk to the job. There certainly was some risk to the job. And it was in our faces. I remember being at Ezio's funeral and seeing the grief and the loss, not only within the family, but in the entire police community. And then, as you said, today, um, we have another funeral for an RCMP member. And in the wake of just losing two members recently, it's been a really, really um, tough, tough month for um, anyone who's got connections with um, with the police family. And this time around, I have to say, um, when we lost constables, Jordan and Ryan really, really hit me hard, harder than any of the other losses and I think more part of that is I'm just in better tune with um, my emotions and letting me be sad and afraid and all of those things and, and, and processing it. But I also um, had a bit more of a curiosity and an observer's mind watching my children and how they processed it this time. And, and I think when we lost um, uh, Constable Woodall, um, I was I was dealing with um, my own um, health at the time, and I really uh, didn't fully realize and see the impact that this was going to have on my children. Um, but I sure did this time, and uh, just to see it through their lens, I, I don't think that people in the general public can really have an understanding of how deeply um, something like this can impact families. And and we're still working through it to this day. So. And just so it doesn't get too heavy, I'm going to point out that you often refer to our children as your children. Be like my boys. I'm like they're not my stepkids; they're my kids too. There was no other family, so but so if you if you hear her say that, they're my kids too. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I tried to remind yeah, myself, sure. yeah, yeah right. not to do not to do that today, and just talk about my children. So yeah, I was, I'm trying to be intentional, <laughs> saying our children. So. Yeah, so those early days, like you said, Dan, um, back to your point about when you were with corrections, I just, again, you know, we want, need to bring a little bit of levity here and there. When you first started, we still had rotary phones, like I shit you not. If I needed to get a hold of you when you were working, I had to leave a message with the front desk. Um, we did not have the constant communication that we do now uh, and access to you. And when you were gone, you were gone. And so, you know, being married to a first responder, like you have to be pretty confident in like how you spend your time when you're on your own and and not sort of get lost in that. Like you you need to have your own life. You need to have your own friends. You need to not get too hung up about birthdays and anniversaries. And you need to be okay with being alone because you are going to be spending some time on your own. And yeah, and not knowing, you know, for a few days sort of like pagers back in the day. That's how we would get a hold of you with pagers. Like we just didn't have the access and I didn't even think anything of it. Like it was like, yay, I get to watch whatever I want and go to the, go to the movie store, pick out the movies I wanted to get. And um, you know, you had to be okay with that because it is a very unique relationship to navigate. Do you remember his pager number? No, I don't remember. 
numbers. One, two, five, eight. Do you remember the phone number you have to call? No. Four two four seven two four eight. Mine was nine seven nine two. <laughs> no idea why I remember that. Interesting thing on the pages though too was because I don't know if you remember this. You'd actually call up and talk to somebody. Like they weren't. It wasn't like voice technology. So I remember I'd be sitting there, and my phone, my pager would go off and be. Daddy, Emma loves you. Have a good night, Daddy. So I can just imagine Tara talking to this lady. Can you say, Daddy? Da-? <laughs> like you just think of the stuff that was said. And then the 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 less funny part about that was the Hell's Angels um, Motorcycle Club ended up intercepting several of our pagers, and one of them was mine. And it had, so they had my address, they had my kids' names, they had my. And then shortly after that. I had a death threat from a Hell's Angel associate where they had a contract on my head. And I remember thinking to myself, how are they intercepting the pages? And we were actually, were you at that search warrant with us or no? No. Okay. Where we were literally, we were watching our pages come across a computer that they had in this, in this room. It was freaking crazy, which led down to, speaking of spouses of police officers, I had the untenable task of telling my wife, I have a death threat. Um, there's actually a contract on me. Um, you, we have to go to the kids' schools and they have to be very, very purposeful in who they get, let see them. Um, Tara had to have a, a phone provided by the police that, so she could call 911. We had our house alarmed. Um, and then the worst part was, and it was just so bad because tactical came and did a, in our house, took pictures of it. So if where there was a hostage taking, they would know where the rooms were. So I'm explaining this to her, um, and she's really not happy with me at the moment. <laughs> and then the best, the funny part was we're sitting outside with our neighbors, as we often did. And Trevor, who moved away <laughs> eventually, said, yeah, the sniper was in my office. He said it was a great OP. And my spouse looked at me and says, now you fucking involved the neighbors. And so it was this, these things that people don't think about that's, that police officers and first responders partners have to go through like telling somebody that there's a contract to have you killed on your head and that doesn't happen to everybody but it does happen yeah another kind of a pivot though too is the social aspect of it because you're a very private person danny and i are extroverted idiots for the most part and very soon you realize we have serial best friends in policing like you work with somebody and you spend all the time with them and oftentimes the spouses then start to become friends as well and then you transfer or they transfer or move or whatever, and you have to start all over again. And I think it was in about year four or five, you're like, nope, I'm not doing this every single time. Yeah, I found it really <clears throat> hard because I I I invest a lot of time in a small m- number of people, and I, I have friendships that last you know a long time. That's I'm not one who has a ton of acquaintances, so... Yeah, when I, you know, invested time and energy in getting to know these people early on, and then you would literally, as you guys do in this career, move to a new job every two years because you get <laughs> you get bored and flighty. I, I was really hard. And so um, small talk for me is really difficult. And I just found I got a little exhausted by the constantly changing social circles. And so for my own mental health, I just had to be a little bit more selective as you move through your career as to like what I was going to attend and um, who was going to be there. And it was it was not what I expected. I think I kind of expected 
um, that there would be a little more consistency with the friendship groups. And yeah, like it was just like if your partner and wherever you were working, you were all in, but you were all in for like 18 months to 24 months and then you would move on to the next serial best friend. It was really interesting to watch, but I had to sort of protect my own energy around that and and sort of navigate how I was going to, you know, create and maintain some friendships that were going to work for me because it was just a bit exhausting to constantly have this this change that was happening. That was I, I didn't expect that. Yeah. I think there's a fairness into you not expecting that though, because you were around our house before Scotty with dad and dad's friend group was very consistent, right? So it wasn't, you didn't see the churn with that because dad was at a stage in his career. But he was in surveillance for five years. That's right. Example, right. So that core group of people yeah. were around for five years. They yeah. really didn't come and go because they all. Yeah. They all stayed together. Yeah. Right. So, and, and then, and some of the other people that were in tactical then were some of the operators that the surveillance guys were following, like Chris and yeah. and Nude, uh, what's his name, Wayne. Um, so there's that. And the, the other thing that I'm just going to point out from what I've seen from Tara's experience, very similar to your experience, and except for the other thing is the divorces. Because there is high rate, rates of divorces and policing, right? And like, and this is actually one of the reasons where Tara kind, of, Tara kind of did the hard no because I had a partner that me and him were partners for, I don't know, three years or something. And we were with them and his spouse before they got married, but they'd been together for 10 years and then they get divorced and it just became a drama drain and the phone was ringing and do you know where this person is? And 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 Tara's like, I'm not getting involved in other people's drama. Like that's not an energy that I want to spend. And that was, and I think that that's something that you have to be aware of. Policing does have a high divorce rate. It's roughly 75% in Canada. And then it pivoted a little bit when I got to be a patrol sergeant and then we were going to a Christmas party as the whatever the boss's wife air quotes and, and you just made a face it's too bad we're not on a video I uh, just we want to cover that experience <laughs> yeah boss. I got a couple I things to add okay. yeah when you enter a space as the boss's wife it's it completely shifts how much fun you can have yeah in the early days of being a constable we we had some really close friends that we connected with and you could I remember once we got invited to um, a party where the sergeant's wife put on the invitations that we were only allowed to stay between 5 p.m. and like 9 p.m. And yep. we were like, what is this about? And she kicked <laughs> us out. And then being the sergeant's wife, you know, later on and seeing, oh, yeah, you actually do need to put some boundaries around these animals or they'll just go and uh, yeah. go crazy. It made a bit more sense. But, yeah, it totally shifted. You didn't have the same friendships because the higher you move up in the rank, the the smaller your social circle gets and you just don't have the same social support either. So it really sort of shrinks um, um, the connections that you can make with, with partners. And back to your point, I mean, again, this is the house that Scott and Dan grew up in. And there was a little basement suite downstairs that, well, Danny, you've lived there for a while with your wife and your daughter. But I mean, we have had like some couch surfers downstairs over the years that have been going through some troubles in their marriage that have made use of that space over the years. And yeah, I was getting a little exhausted with trying to remember the names of like second, third and fourth wives of some of the men that you have known forever. And uh, yeah, I couldn't keep up with who they were marrying and when and who was coming and going because I've been there for I've been there from the start. So yeah, just kind of interesting to to watch it all <laughs> come together that's why sometimes i introduce tara as my first wife yeah no no okay. really <laughs> yeah. the other thing i wanted to before we kind of get into um 
the uh, the next part of our conversation is I want to talk a little bit about um, about our boys and sort of the experience that we had raising two boys um, being uh, in a police family. So, I mean, early on, Scott and I did make the um, the mutual decision that um, I would work part time um, and be a, a little bit more available for the boys as they were growing up, but. Um, shift work has advantages and I think, um, we can get caught up in all the, the negative around the, the life of being, uh, working shift work and, and all that that entails, but you were available for those boys. When I was working, you were the dad that was taking care of them. You weren't babysitting, you were dad staying home and looking after the kids and you went on field trips with them and they had like a really um, interesting opportunity to have both of their parents present for most of um, their elementary school years, uh, which was nice and stable. And then um, as they got a bit older uh, and into junior high and busy with all their sports and stuff, um, you and I, I think, both thought, oh, maybe we're able to take on more responsibilities at work, which I tried to do, and then you did with taking on roles like in homicide. And then that's when life kind of got a little bit crazy, and, and there was a period of time that I did feel like I was single parenting a lot. And I had like a support team trying to help me get those boys to all of their activities and, and keep things afloat. But the one thing I did want to comment on was the the stories that our boys were exposed to at the dinner table some nights were just like no other. And I mean, they, both of our boys, they, they look up to their dad and they are, they are so proud and idolize, you know, um, what you do for a living and how you, you are as a father. But, um, some of the stories that we sh- we would share on the d- dinner table. I mean, I don't know if I can repeat some of them yeah. here. No. Okay. Then I won't, but I mean, <laughs> the, the, um, uh, well, Mark uh, Bloxham, who you had on your, your last um, podcast, used to say that um, uh, you and I share um, uh, shock and awe parenting with our children. And so um, I just know that uh, while it was maybe an unconventional upbringing, I think that they have been able to see you and I through our highs and our lows and really appreciate the full range of human experience. And I don't think they would want it to be any other way either. We were always very open and transparent with them and and we had a good time while we were doing it. And being in patrol uh, and looking after the fellows, as they were babies and going before elementary school, I loved it. Like I didn't get much sleep because you'd finish midnights at whatever eight in the morning back then and you'd be at work. So if they were old enough to maybe watch a movie while you doze on the couch, that's what you did. And then you just kind of got moving and took them to their things or walked outside or played outside. And then you, in a weird way, I got, I hung out with like our, friends' moms, like the moms who were looking after the in the more traditional dads at work moms are at home. I'm at home during the week because that happened to be where my days off were. And you're right, I got to go to cool uh, field trips with the fellas. And I got like the, uh, the one, uh, Jack's friend, when he was in elementary school, uh, her grandma, her, I had a, we had a beautiful day at the Ukrainian village. Like it was just cool experiences that shift work allowed me to do because you are not Monday to Friday, eight to four or whatever. Like sometimes you're off Monday through Thursday and then you're back up on the weekends. And then I've been lucky because of where I've worked and some and the people I've worked for, where if the boys had a sporting event, oftentimes I could figure out a way to get there uh, while I was working or, again, right after shift. 
it was one funny story. I won't quite trauma slime. I'll tell exactly what I said, but we were at hockey and it's eight in the morning of my last shift and I'm so tired. Like I haven't slept at all and I probably had cords or something like that. So I'm at the hockey arena and you kind of get surrounded. People want to hear stories or at least they did back then. Oh my God, what happened? What was interesting? What was, so I told this disgusting story of a stabbing that I had gone to and I deadpanned it and all the parents' faces just kind of went blank and then they filtered away and you looked over at me and you're basically like, what the fuck was that? And I'm like, they asked the question. I'm just telling them what happened. Um, it's funny that you say that because, and that you just made me think of something when you said that, and this was an accidental trauma slam and I won't get into the details of it, but I'm sure you probably did the same thing. You'd get the phone call from homicide and they'd be, and you'd be talking and then you'd be kind of regurgitating what there's being said. And I remember I was doing this, not aware at all that the girls were sitting there in the living room watching TV and I'm literally talking about a traumatic, traumatic homicide. And Tara comes up, down from the upstairs and is looking at me like, "What? Can't, you couldn't go into another fucking room?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah." And I'm looking at them, and they're they're not. Even, I don't even know if they heard me if or not. But I think the things that that my my girls and your boys have been exposed to over the years through our careers, and we were exposed to yeah. as kids. Um, it shapes you differently, and it it takes away that you know the potential of a bubble. And I know. My wife always used to say to me, don't pop my bubble. <laughs> but she also then realized that I was holding stuff in and not telling her. And that didn't go well either. I did it for a whole lot longer than you did. Because I I was able to hide and pretend that I wasn't bothered when I got home. I was able to use those deadly acting skills from the Citadel Theater until I wasn't. And then I was a, a, a thousand percent a di- dick, right? And then it turned out, I remember when me and Tara had some troubles in our marriage and we were, when I went through some therapy and she said, she said to me, she goes, you are so good at being present and listening to me that I don't have to be present and listen to you because you've just made this conversation about me and I never got to know any of those things about you. And I caution anybody who's thinking about getting into this profession or is newer into these professions, do not do that to yourself. Do not push that stuff down. Do not do not not share. Don't come home and trauma slime your spouse, but be honest about your emotions and your feelings and the things that have impacted you because your spouse deserves it. And in the words of um, Robert Duvall in Colors, they will fucking walk, they will fucking leave you. <laughs> so I think it's just something that people got to think about. And what just popped in my head is, because we are very open about our wellness journeys or paths here. I wonder if that's why I'm a little bit further ahead than you, that I, without even knowing I recognize it, but I was more demonstrative with my moods, and which always just came out as anger. Like as I was growing up in this job, I would be just, I'd be mad about everything in the world or whatever. But I didn't, I could compartmentalize at work. Like uh, we've had stuff at home here that we've navigated. People at work would have no idea. I can be stone cold at work. I can take my mask off a little bit more at home which maybe led me to figure out and again i'm nowhere i have not had a finish line because this has been a terrible week where i was completely dysregulated and horrible to everybody around me on two days ago so it's not like i figured it out but i wonder if that might be part of the math well i think sorry i think you're 100 percent right and i think what happened to me was it took my relationship breaking it took me excessively drinking and puking, almost choking myself to death in a bed. Almost bond scotted it. Almost bond scotted it to to actually willingly go get help. 
And it's funny because I look at the me now and I look at the me then and the me then said, I'm not going for fucking help, first of all. And then when I did go get some help, I said, if you tell anybody this, I will fucking never talk to you again. Nobody is to know about me getting help. And I just went to my new therapist yesterday, which was really nice. (laughs) Yeah, and I think as we learn and mature um, and figure out sort of how to have the courage to be vulnerable about sharing our emotions, it all comes out in different ways. And, you know, you guys have known me my entire life as well. And you know that I'm not someone who is superly emotive. Like I keep, I'm very private. I keep my emotions really close to me and I only share them with a very small group of people. And um, yours showed up, you know, later on as maybe the anxiety and the troubles with your digestive system. And mine showed up um, about uh, 10 years ago. Um, in a very physical way. So this um, way that I had navigated my life to, as Scotty talks about his sort of trauma trunk, all of my little T traumas that I have had through um, my childhood and navigating perhaps some of the vicarious trauma that, you know, has happened through, you know, witnessing what you guys have been through in your careers and, you know, just life and how we navigate it, not knowing what we're doing and figuring out as we go. Mine came out as a very physical illness. And that was when I had to um, really sort of come to terms with um, how I was going to take better care of myself because I I never had any issues that I thought were really related to my mental health, mine came out in very physical ways. I just, my body started to completely break down. And so, um, you know, Scotty and I were helping out at a conference last week and and one of the presenters, Dr. Dahl, who I think you will hopefully have the opportunity to have on an upcoming uh, podcast, um, is a psychotherapist. And uh, he says the body will always win over the mind we think we can think ourselves out of these situations and we can't. And so my work came um, by starting to um, start to reconnect with um, what was going on with me because I was so dissociated from my body because of the pain that I was having that that really kicked off my wellness journey, um, which to this point has not really involved me um, going to therapy. Which it might not to say that it never will, but I haven't had great experiences with therapy in the past um, that have been mostly um, talk based therapy. And again, that really hasn't been helpful for me, but that doesn't mean that in the future, um, maybe looking at more of a somatic approach wouldn't be helpful for me. Um, but my in was um, was movement and this yoga journey that Scott and I sort of um, started on. I mean, I'd done yoga my entire life, but I'd always done it for very physical reasons. And it really wasn't until a few years ago that I could use it as a platform to just start to do some deeper healing and sort of figure out what was going on with me. I uh, used a thing that the talk therapy thing was my initial one was talk therapy. I'm actually starting EMDR is what I'm starting um, next on May 2nd is my next appointment. So, but it's that it goes back to the, what you're just saying is it's not one thing. It's not one way. It's not just be, it's that whole like I've I get very frustrated in the addiction space because um, you and you see different government and policies and stuff like that. And then they treat addiction with a singular form of addictions therapy. And they don't. What about cognitive behavior therapy for those folks or EMDR? Because they're 
a lot of that's trauma based and and it's the problem happens and i think this is also the problem that can happen with mental wellness and wellness is my journey is this way so i'm telling people you got to do this what i'm doing because and and like i often say just because i have mental health issues does not make me a psycho psychotherapist and if just because you have cancer it doesn't make you an oncologist so everyone's health journey has to be different and we have to be okay with experimenting with what's going to make us feel right so we'll go back to you then so what uh, do you want to go into a little bit of what your pain looked like and then what your steps you took to start to mitigate that sure so, you know, if anyone's interested in um, learning a little bit more about what was going on with me health, I did sort of outline it on a podcast that we can put into the the links of the show. Um, because again, I have, a, I do still have a hard time talking about it and, uh, and I'm very private about it, but my issues um, in the end, um, I have chronic migraine and it is very severe and if you don't understand, like if you just think it's a headache, um, it's not just a headache. Uh, it affects my cognition. It affects um, my entire body. It affects my gut. It affects um, my balance. It affects uh, my word finding. It just, it's all encompassing. So it, when I'm really in the thick of it, um, I really have a hard time functioning. And, and it was so bad uh, in 2017, when I was, I was trying so hard to fix it and function and work and be super mom that I ended up having a, a, a really adverse, um, drug reaction that almost did me. in. I ended up with something called serotonin syndrome. And that was sort of my turning point to, I, I need to look at something more than pushing through and medicating myself and, and, um, trying to do all the things I, I had to put myself first. And so I, I, I had to stop working and, and really focus on my own wellness. And um, for me, using yoga as a platform uh, to learn how to um, pay attention to my breathing and my body tension and my thoughts and learning practices of mindfulness and being much more gentle and compassionate about myself when it comes to exercise and movement and life have sort of been the platform for me uh, to integrate some of these other modalities into my life. I dabble in the hot and cold. Um, I try things. I try different kinds of meditations. Um, I try different kinds of movement. And I just experiment. And every day is sort of a new recipe to see if I can figure out what's going to work for me um, today. Um, but it hasn't, yeah, it looks very different from your journey, Dan. It looks very different from your journey, Scott. And we're all just sort of doing the best that we can to to figure things out. But um, over the last five years, I, I am a very pragmatic, logical person. And I want to know why these things work. Like for me, I need to understand why. So I took a deep dive into pain science and I, I know a shit ton about polyvagal theory now. And I still think that, um, even though there's some issues with the theory, um, for me, and I think for Scott, I, I won't, you know, you can speak to it as well, but polyvagal theory, for those of you who don't know a lot about it, it is the science of safety and it is finding safety in your nervous system. 
And there are ways that you can do that that are both a top-down approach that are like mind-to-body, and there's a bottoms-up approach where you can work through the body to affect the mind. And looking at trying all kinds of different things to let your nervous system know that it's okay and it doesn't need to be so hyper-vigilant if that's what your issue is, if you are always in like a, a sympathetic state. Some people can fall into that dorsal vagal state where they can collapse and freeze, like wherever you are on the spectrum of your nervous system, there are ways that you can try to bring some balance and get you back into your window of tolerance. So um, for me, learning about polyvagal theory and then finding practical ways to apply it has made um, yoga not so magical and mystical and really a platform for me to um, figure out how to move in this world again. It's interesting that you say that because in one session with my new therapist, she gave me two different things specifically around polyvagal theory. Because I talked about, I, I get panic attacks for no reason sometimes. Well, there's a reason, but I just don't know what it is. And it really doesn't matter why. But she gave me one where you cross your legs, you sit and you cross your legs, you right over left, and then you cross your arms left over right, and then tuck them up and bring it. It actually feels like you're giving yourself a hug. And it was really awesome. And the other one she gave me was deep breathing very similar to what you've talked about but then rubbing right in between your thumb and and thumb to forefinger and rubbing that in circles as you breathe and i haven't had a big anxiety attack since yesterday so that's cool but so i haven't really tried them in operation but the fact that you're using bilateral you're the bilateral stuff just to do that crossover is exactly what you're talking about yeah, and that that's what I love is that there's so many ways you can try. And some the, the, a lot of these somatic therapies you're talking about, they do have roots in yoga. And they, you know, let's admit it, they've sort of been appropriated and made um, acceptable in Western culture through the practice of psychology and somatic experiencing. But whatever makes it accessible to people, that's fantastic. Um, but the one that has really landed for Scott and I that I don't think we, you guys have talked about yet on the podcast is our kids have introduced us to climbing. And again, it's some of these principles of um, can I take this idea of being present in my body and paying attention to my breathing and my body tension and the thoughts that I'm having while I'm doing something rather than running through my to-do list or having anxiety about something, can I really truly be in the moment and just enjoy it and make space and um, breathe? And for in climbing, it has been super interesting to play with. You cannot think about anything else when you are navigating a climb. It's like this little puzzle and I'm so glad that the kids, you know, took their 50-year-old parents and weren't too embarrassed to bring us along for the ride because it's been super fun to explore that as another way to, like, just turn the brain off for a little while. There's a saying in martial arts and boxing, more boxing than martial arts, that no one fights unless they have to, right? And I always wondered what my have to was. And knowing my brain and knowing that I don't get to do that anymore, that was the only time in my life I've ever been all right in the moment sure. because you, you can't be thinking about yeah. sandwiches when someone's throwing punches at you, yeah. right? So it, it gave me the opportunity and I have a bit of ADHD as people may know. And so even that, and at 12 years old, getting into a martial arts space and then having Marjeet teach me meditation and teach me all of these things that make so much sense now, but had no idea what it was for. 
And the and I remember Larry always used to say to me, my boxing coach, no one fights unless they have to. You just got to figure out what that have to is. And it took until I've lost the ability to fight. Not the I can go pick a fight if I want, I guess. <laughs> probably, I probably shouldn't. But because I don't spar and I don't do that anymore, I still hit the bag. And it's the closest thing when I get into the heavy bag is that's the closest I get. But my mind was still drift yeah. because there's no, no danger. Because there's no danger, yeah. right? And so yeah, that's the thing. And that was that's what with climbing because I don't really like heights. Like I'm okay, but you're this is the place we go to. You're not strapped in like you're just climbing. It's bouldering until you're climbing up this boulder, oh, okay. and sometimes there's an overhang depending. And it's so accessible. Like I'm the, easily we're the oldest people by twenty years. It's all like university kids in there, so you have to pay attention. There's a little bit of danger that you could fall, and you're going to fall on a mat. You're probably not going to hurt yourself, but it just hyper focuses you. What I also wanted to point out too is. As we've gone on our wellness journey, which has been very cool with not only the three of us in the room, but others kind of in our spaces, is the subtleties and difference of what works and what doesn't. So your type of meditation, where you are more kundalini-based, which means there's some kind of uh, movement of hands and chanting and noise, that doesn't work for me. I find that agitating. Mine is more a guided meditation, whether it's through Waking Up app, Sam Harris, or Tara Brock on Spotify or whatever. And then even the hot and cold. You don't like it as cold, but you've kind of pushed your window. I can do as cold as cold can be. I don't like the heat. You can go way hotter. So just even within those same gradients, there's a continuum of where we uh, go into those spaces. Yeah, for sure. And I I think the last, there's no last piece of the puzzle, but the current um, rabbit hole that I've gone down, which I don't think that I would have been able to explore if I hadn't done all of this other work was I'm taking um, an eight week uh, course right now in the science of self-compassion, which if you would have told me 10 years ago that I was going to be taking this, I would have told you you were full of shit, but it's super interesting. Again, I need the why. So having the science piece behind how these practices can shift your brain chemistry has been super helpful for me because then I can sort of make myself do it even if I don't want to. But this idea that the science uh, supports that if you can be kinder to yourself, have a gentler inner voice, a friendlier tone with yourself, that in the long run, that will contribute more to your resilience and building your window of tolerance than beating yourself up and being this harsh inner critic. It will maybe serve you in the short term, but in the long term, the studies have shown that it is higher. Um, it's linked to increases in anxiety, increases in depression, and you're going to burn out quicker. So I know those words sound really fluffy, but um, it has been interesting to start to, as I said, for me, it was paying attention to the breathing, the body tension. And now I'm working a little bit on the inner dialogue and just sort of seeing what what that voice inside my head has been telling me. And back to your point about it sort of being different, like you, it's interesting because you and I are on this journey in our, our own way, sort of parallels, but we can sort of bounce things off each other. And does this work for you? What about, and, and so know that, like you said, my experience is going to be very different from someone else's and that that's okay. Like my, I used to hold my breath all the time when I was doing something. I, I had lots of body tension. I was holding my breath, even when I was driving. And I didn't know I was doing that because I wasn't paying attention to it. And for you, it was um, sighing. sighing. And so just even knowing this difference in 
how the breath shows up in us yeah. is super interesting. So we can always have these conversations about really weird things. Yes. And we had, we were lucky enough to last week be uh, helping out on Myrna McCollum's trauma law course, which was just a wonderful experience in Whistler. It was beautiful. But we got one of the best compliments ever from one of the uh, people who were participating. And they said, hey, it's, it's really cool that you're here. And they love the unapologetic way we present it. Because we don't present it with any, we're not talking about chakras, and I'm not downgrading any of that, but that doesn't, doesn't typically resonate with the people that I'm in circles with. But the practical, here's why it works. Here's a couple tips of what you can do to really summarize. Like the summary of the breath stuff was be aware of it. Breathe through your nose as much as you possibly can. Breathe less. So try to take in five seconds in, five seconds out. Those three things, if you just practice those and start to increase that as part of your practice, will make night and day differences in your life. I would attribute that because you've kind of slow, play slow played me into working on my breathing. And I think... And I think about my breathing a lot, especially when I'm walking the dog in the morning. And like I think uh, I've said on this podcast, I stopped listening to anything. I'm purposely trying to be alone in my own head um, and not escape. And I know there's time for that, but I just want to get my my brain right. And focusing on my breathing and, and having lost now, I think it's 13 pounds since December 9th, I think is not just walking the dog, but breathing properly while I'm walking the dog, right? Like focusing on that breath and focusing on that. I think... People don't realize that breathing alone can help you in so many ways. Like, and people think, "Well, I breathe fine." No, you don't, because you're breathing through your mouth all the time, and you're taking short breaths, or you're or you're sighing, or you're holding your breath because you're doing something stressful, and that's a natural reaction to hold your breath. And I just think thinking about it is, and being purposeful with it is really important. Is there anything else, my lovely bride, that you would like to cover before we close it up? good i mean we we did a little arc there the only thing that i didn't that i forgot to come back to was um might as well do full circle you were talking about your experience with boxing and so again i've known dan since he was about 13 years old and uh dan has worn many hats over the years i've seen dan as like 12 12 or 13 year old like carrying your briefcase to school Dan I've seen that version of Dan Uh, I did see the martial arts uh, Dan Um, I saw the uh, military Dan I don't even know what you would call it like you would go down to the ravine ravine with cousin Sam and play war down in the ravine so I've seen that version I've seen you like you shaved your head one year like you did all you've you've had a lot of phases and now now you're Dr. Dan which is super interesting to see that all um come together but I'm I'm really glad that we had a chance to to finally do this and and have the conversation on the podcast because I mean you guys have been at this for for a bit now but 38, yeah, a year in May is when it's, we started it so yeah, yeah. so high 30s which is crazy so it's Anyway, my point is that it's been really fun to sort of watch everyone's evolution and everyone's growth and everyone just sort of finding their way. And I think by having this conversation, um, I think Dan and Scott would agree that the three of us just feel like 
we want to share and be a resource to people out there that might be listening that are struggling to know that that you're not alone. Like everyone has shit going on. Um, and if you need to reach out or you have questions that um, we're happy to to be here to to support you so that you don't have to go through maybe some of the the hard work that we did to figure some of this stuff out and get you on the right path. So um, with Scott and I, um, starting this little yoga business together um, and experimenting with doing retreats and speaking at conferences and stuff. We just want to be able to, you know, uh, share with people our stories, share the resources that we've come across, and maybe some of it will resonate with you so that we can uh, we can get everybody to um, be in contact with the resources they need and and figure out this this thing called life. Right on. Just one final story. Um, Terry was there when my brother broke my ribs. Oh, yeah, yeah, we should get to that <laughs> Because <one. laughs> uh, I was beacon off in such a way that I do. Um, and just, I can be the death by a thousand cuts guy. I can just, just I can just be constant. Like and, a metronome of douche. Yes, a metronome of douche is a good way to put it. That's probably going to be the title of this podcast. Um, no, because then it'll look like that Terry's that. Oh, that's very... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was bugging him and bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. And he had I, – I, Terry was here. Sherry was here. And I think Tanya, I think. Tamara. Tamara. That's her name. And he finally just freaking lost it. And he put me up against the fridge and he was punching me as hard as he could in the ribs. And me being me, refusing to let him know that I was hurt. I'm like, oh, you can't even hurt your little brother. You can't even hurt your little brother in front of your girlfriend. Such a tough guy. I can't even hurt you. And they ended up having to pull him off of me. And uh, yeah, he broke my ribs. He broke two of my ribs. I ended up coughing up a little blood. It was was pretty good. So (laughs) anyway, (laughs) that's a funny story. And uh, we were always told not to fight in the living room. So we didn't. That was was the kitchen. kitchen. (laughs) So with that, um, I will say just the caveat. This isn't Scotty uh, anywhere Scotty's worked. I've worked or Terry's worked or whatever. This is us and our thoughts alone. Um, and I also just wanted to uh, honor that we are on Treaty 6 land. I had a really interesting conversation with a very dear friend of mine who's going to be on the podcast later today. Just going to be on the podcast later today. I talked to her. Anyways, that didn't sound right. But she's Indigenous, and we were talking about land acknowledgements, and we were talking about the performative nature in which so many places are seeking re- reconciliation. And an interesting conversation about that was, what it feels like it to my friend is that we in reconciliation spaces do the performative stuff to make us as the settlers feel better. We're still not elevating indigenous peoples into spaces that we need to elevate them in. So again, just want everyone to think about that. I just want to jump in too, because we are very intentional to do land acknowledgements and yoga acknowledgements when we do presentations, particularly at conferences, because all of these techniques that, uh, have been co-opted and uh, whitewashed, and I mean that literally, uh, are all ancient techniques that are, have come from people from thousands of years ago. So we have to acknowledge it. Yes, when we talk about a breathing technique and we call it box breathing, it's not. It's a yoga technique. So kind of honoring the ancestors and elders from yoga as well. But back to the land acknowledgement, when we were in BC, we were lucky enough to have uh, lunch with our Terry's brother Marty and our sister-in-law Jocelyn, who's been on our podcast before. And she's such an articulate, intelligent human. And we started talking about um, 
the kind of the fake way that there is truth and reconciliation. Like it's it's a check mark, it's done half assed and she talked about the high school that is in their area in New Hazelton and the last study that they saw, it was the lowest rated high school in all of BC. Because people come there and she goes these new teachers come here, they're in their early 20s, and instead of listening and trying to understand the culture and what some of those kids have been to through, because they're still suffering from intergenerational trauma because they are direct or grandparents were residential school survivors, they come in, they're bossy, they're bitchy, they're yippy, and then the kids go, fuck you, I'm not going to school anymore, and then no one wins. So back to the, let's actually make it real, and how many places still don't have clean drinking water, which is absolutely asinine and bananas. Like, fix those two things, and you probably, we could actually have some reconciliation that doesn't just make settlers feel better. 100%. I think with that, we're good. Love you. Love you, too.